Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed Local Provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, security sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house and giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner and an investment advisor with 19 years experience in providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I have an MBA in finance. I'm also Dave Ramsey's endorsed local provider and have over 22 years in helping individuals and corporations with planning. We're excited to have you listening to us today on our weekly radio show. We are right here every Saturday, like today, from 9 to 10 a.m. You can also go to our website, moneymd.net, and we have a link in the top right-hand corner. You can stream us from uh, really anywhere in the world, comforts of your kitchen. We have clients you know, all over the, the, the nation that That's hopefully right. are tuning into it and listening to us. Um, yeah, Alaska. Yeah. we got them everywhere, pretty much. Go. Yeah, I mean, you also can download the TuneIn Radio app, which is my favorite way of listening. And if you upgrade to the pro version, you can actually record us because they have a uh, you can set a schedule mm-hmm. and have it record every Saturday morning. Then you can listen to it wherever you want to. So another great way to listen. All right, but um, John, I think we have an awesome show today. Uh, you know, we're going to start off here talking about the DNA of investing. Is your DNA directing your investments? Well, it shouldn't be. Yeah, it's it's an interesting take on this. It's a very interesting article. You know, there's some new research that's come out that says, you know, your your DNA, your genes, actually you're a little bit genetically dispositioned. Yeah. We're going to talk about that. It's a great article. Very interesting. It, it really is. And then we're going to follow that up with an, an article about retirement. We talk about that a lot. And um, so the article title is to retire at 65 or not. I mean, sometimes we see plans for some of our clients that um, – you know, they're, they want to work until their mid-60s, late 60s, sometimes even 70s, and sometimes they're required to because they haven't saved enough of course. over time. So we're going to kind of look at the pros and cons of that. And then another article, which is similar, current event, um, it's about the retirement crisis. So we see it, and it's not just in the United States. It's really around the world. And the 2008 uh, financial crisis are certainly played into that a little bit, but um, we're going to give you some steps that you can do to, to come out of that and make some changes in your life. So you want to stick around for that segment as well. Yeah, so we're really going to focus on retirement here in the second half. That will yep. be a great segment for folks that are gearing up for that stage of their life. All right, but we're going to start off here, though, with the financial fact of the week. Yeah, this is a downer. This Uh-oh. is a Social Security uh, Sources Urban Institute, and and, and here's the, here's the uh, financial fact. An average high-income American couple that retired in 2010 will pay about $765,000 of lifetime Social Security taxes. That's what's coming out of their check on a monthly basis. But they'll receive just 693000 of Social Security benefits. And so, you know, when you look at it from a simplistic standpoint, every dollar they put in, right. they get out 91 cents in benefits. Ah, that's the high-income people. John, who cares? <laughs> that's that 1% they talk about. I mean, come on. What you know? A, I mean, they, they deserve to pay a little more. Yeah, right? what a bad deal. I, I imagine <laughs> for the is. average American, I don't have it the stats a, here, but it's probably 
maybe they put a dollar in and they get a dollar one out or something. It's just right. not a good. It's not a good functioning system. It is a good social, good social safety net. But yeah, I mean, it needs to be beneficial for everybody, right? It doesn't need to be a negative for even the top one percent because you know what happens when governments get stressed, right? They start redefining what wealthy means, and in Greece now. You're considered wealthy. You're in the very top tax bracket if you make $55,000 a year, mm-hmm. the equivalent of, you know, what we make here in the U.S. Yeah, the middle Bob class Bob. starts to become wealthy. Exactly. And that's, what's, exactly. that's what we see. I mean, taxes are not only hitting the wealthy, but they're also starting to hit the middle class as well. So, yeah, so the definition is being changed, unfortunately. It is. It is. But, yeah, Social Security, not such a great deal for the higher income folks. A good, interesting financial fact, nonetheless. All right. Well, that leads us up to our first topic here of the day, and that is um, it's an article out of the Wall Street Journal here just recently, and it's the ABCs of Investors DNA. And the question is, you know, is your DNA directing your investments? Because it shouldn't be, John. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, some things you can't leave up to your natural instinct, okay? Like dieting. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to lose weight, are you just going to do what feels right and what you want to do? Cause, no, that's not the right answer. Yeah, you, you might weigh 300 pounds mm-hmm. before long um, if you do that. At least I would because I really like food. And uh, it's the same thing with investing, you know. But anyway, yeah, I mean, this is a great article that just came out here recently. You know, they start off talking about Benjamin Graham. Um, he was Warren Buffett's mentor and he's the author of Security Analysis. The Intelligent Investor was another book he wrote. So he's really like the father of security analysis mm-hmm. from back in the 30s. And Graham's widowed mother was a small-time speculator. She was wiped out during the panic of 1907 um, when he was 13 years old. But he never forgot the humiliating moment in his childhood when his mother sent him to cash a check at the local bank teller. Mm-hmm. And... He asked the manager if, well, the man, the bank teller asked the manager if Mrs. Graham was good for $5, mm. you know, and that humiliated him, and that, that affected him the rest of his life. So he grew up to favor companies which were so universally um, despised by investors <clears throat> that the stocks were, as he liked to call them, worth more dead than alive. He was kind of the, the first really big time value investor he would seek companies that were really beat down and he he but he resoundingly beat the market over his multi-decade investing career yeah that's interesting that it, it takes it back to his childhood for how he's investing you know during his lifetime and then there's another example that sir uh, john templeton who grew up the son of a, a country lawyer in uh, tennessee templeton's father uh, was also a speculator he traded cotton futures and he came home one day and told his young sons, uh, boys, we've lost it all. We're ruined. Mm. And uh, Templeton worked odd jobs to scrounge his way through college and graduate school. And in 1939, at age 27, Templeton told his broker to buy him $100 worth of every listed U.S. stock trading for $1 a share or less. Which would probably be valued stocks, yeah, right? Low, I'm low sure, price stocks. I'm sure, they were low price stocks. Well, listen yeah. to this: he quadrupled his money in four years. Wow, he created like the first deep value stock fund. I guess what he's what basically he's doing there. That's exactly right. And people are always asking asking him, you know, where where the investing outlook is good. And he says that's the wrong question. Templeton once said the right question is is where is the outlook most miserable. 
That's interesting because it's the exact it opposite of what most people think. That's right? exactly right. So he was another really deep value investor mm-hmm. um, by buying those beat down stocks. Um, very interesting. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's obvious that our life experiences help shape everything from, you know, how we invest, you know, to our ambitions. Um, you know, my mother, unfortunately, was an alcoholic when I was in high school. I mean, we all had something in our background sure. that affected us. And, you know, I had to pay my way through college, and, and that certainly helped shape the way that I think about things, you know, like what example I'm creating for my kids and how I value education and the opportunity to learn. Um, so it only makes sense that our experiences also help shape how we view risk and opportunities. Um, you know, and their experiences might have shaped how Graham and Templeton, you know, favored value, cheap value stocks over the fast-moving growth stocks. But that performance might, that, that preference they had might also have been encoded in their genes. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting here. In a speech at uh, Babson College in 2010, the renowned value investor Seth uh, Clareman remarked that research on fruit flies showed that most of them would swim toward the light but a small minority of them were genetically programmed to stay away from the light. Yeah, that's interesting. So there were a few of them, like, genetically would, yeah. would repel the light. That's interesting. Yeah, and so Mr. Clareman, uh, president of the Boston-based uh, firm, which manages about $26 billion in hedge fund assets, he jokingly called these fruit, fruit flies tiny contrarians. Yes. <laughs> So things funny. Um, yeah, I mean the insect equivalent of deep value investors is what he called them. He went on to speculate that most people might possess a dominant gene for chasing hot performance over the hyped and overhyped assets, while only a minority have the recessive value gene that confers a, a patient preference for whatever is battered and unpopular. So, Mr. Clareman, you know, he he said this past week, you know, just recently in this article that he quotes him saying that he still holds that same view. And, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me, John. I think there there really could be something in our genes that kind of predispositions us to – you know how we how you might view investments as well. Yeah, and actually, there was a, a new study that that finds that uh, investors may in fact have that genetic predisposition, uh, predisposition to hunt for either bargains or, or maybe even gross stocks. Uh, although, as we pointed out, Steve, you know the the environment you grew up in also powerfully shapes uh, the kind of investor that you are. That that certainly impacts it. And you know, in the study that uh, just referred to, there are three economists. Um, that examined the genetic makeup of investment portfolios of 35,000 twins in Sweden. So they were trying to see if there was a gene correlation. Yeah, that, that's, this is a really interesting study because identical twins, they share 100% of their DNA, right? Um, while fraternal twins share about the same amount as their brothers and their sisters do. So identical twins really do give you a picture of, you know, whether there's a, a, a DNA type of... Mm-hmm. Uh, Great way to Correlation. study. It's a great study. So we're going to dig into that when we get back from the break here. Um, but if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net, or you can give us a call when you during regular business hours at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD with John and Steve. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner. 
And I'm here with John Travis, who is Dave Ramsey's endorsed local provider. And we are continuing our discussion here before the break. Um, an article out of the Wall Street Journal talking about the ABCs of investors' DNA. And, you know, the question is, is your DNA directing your investments, mm-hmm. um, your genetic predisposition, John? Because, you know, we I think there's some studies here that show that we all have some genetic predisposition, kind of like these fruit flies they talked about yeah, here. Yeah, <laughs> going to the light, attracted to the light. <laughs> right. Some were attracted to the light, and but a few of them were actually would swim the other way, away from the light. And, um, you know, I think we're going to see with investing, there there is some, some background to that. Of course, our environment. Yeah. Experiences as you were younger, um, yeah. they went through a couple of examples here of um, – some folks that had some pretty traumatic events when they were kids and their parents or their families kind of went bankrupt. And it certainly shaped how they viewed investments going forward. Templeton was one of them. Yeah, John Templeton, famous value investor. And, you know, it's just talking about, yeah, I mean, how he um, uh, is kind of his rearing, you know, um, with his father uh, really kind of kind of brought that in. He kind of mm-hmm. did the opposite of what his father did who kind of led to ruin because he was a speculator. And, he, you know, based on that, his rear, his upbringing was he didn't want to speculate. He wanted to be more of a study, study deep value stocks and mm-hmm. pick stocks based on ones that were, were really, um, you know, beat down and low priced. So, um, yeah, I mean, and so there was a study that just came out, well, that, that came out a while ago about identical twins because identical twins share 100% of their DNA Um and the researchers compare the similarity of their portfolios held by the identical twins and held by fraternal twins, which really don't share any any mm-hmm. DNA that's, you know, any more than a brother and sister do. And that enabled the economists to estimate the extent at which the same combination of genes were associated with a similar portfolio. So what the analysis shows is that the average stock held by these investors traded at a P.E. ratio of 23 times earnings. Yeah, and so the the P.E. ratio, price to earnings, typically is 15 to 16. So anything higher than that is going to be more of a growth stock, anything less than that, more of a value stock. Right, right. right. So these are kind of on the growth side. Um, Only only a tenth of the investors, only 10% of them, called themselves deep value hunters, and they held stocks with an average P.E. of about 11.6. Or lower, which was you know half of what the whole pool was, right? And then one quarter of the investors were hardcore growth seekers, as they term them, they call it here, and they held stocks with a PE ratio of about twenty eight point six or higher. So you know those were were well above you know the the average. So but the study's findings are <clears throat> are, are, are pretty precise because its sample of investors is large. And because Swedish tax law required the complete disclosure hmm. of their individual holdings until just recently. That's interesting. So they had access to, yeah, everything they bought. Um, so according to the study, up to 24%, or about a fourth, of the differences in the degree to which the investors favor value over growth stocks could be explained by the variations in their genetic code. Interesting. It is very interesting. So it appears that favoring deep value stocks or fast-moving growth stocks isn't just a preference. It's at least partly innate tendency, um, 
according to this professor Siegel. And you're about to share with us why value and growth makes a difference, right? I mean, that's yeah, a, we can look back at history, and it, it can make a huge difference in returns. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's real important that you don't just succumb to your to your um, to your genetic disposition, um, predisposition. Um, because, you know, I mean, that is the real question here, John. I mean, should you let your experiences and your genetics dictate how you invest? And I mean, it's just like, think of religion, for example. You know, should you believe in a religion just because that's how you're raised, or should you study on your own to develop your own conviction and your own, uh, you know, sense of, of owning your faith? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's easy to be swayed by our predispositions and let those carry us, you know, along in life. Um, I think it's obvious to me, at least, that most people left their own devices would be growth investors because I mean, your emotions are going to tell you to buy the winners, you know, buy stocks with a great track record. And those are the growth stocks. Mm-hmm. Fortunately for us, more analytical investors, which I am definitely analytical and mm-hmm. I, I know you are too, yep. you know, that creates a great opportunity for us in value stocks because people do gravitate toward growth and that means value does have a a higher expected return and in fact i mean analytics will tell you that to buy value stocks because historically they've beaten growth stocks by about three percent per year for the last 80 years and that's a huge number and obviously huge past performance doesn't predict going forward but there's some fundamental reasons value stocks have beaten growth because they're they're low price. They're beaten down, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, naturally, analytical people are going to study that, and they're going to be value investors. But the majority of people are not analytical. We know that, unfortunately, you know, and, and they're going to follow their emotional bent, and they're going to buy growth-type investments, and they're going to time the market because that's kind of what your emotions lead you to do. A less analytical person is going to believe in the proverbial pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, if you will. <laughs> and, you yeah. know, they're going to try to pick – Stocks are going to try to time the market, try to beat the market. You have to resist that temptation and follow a more analytical approach if you want to be successful. I mean, it's some some things like investing require some effort and studying to go against your predisposition. Just kind of like I mentioned earlier, dieting. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you can't eat everything you want. When yes. You're, when you're dieting. Yes, that's right. you got to have a little bit of uh, self-discipline and understand the consequences associated with that. And, you know, in, environmental influences uh, also help to, to explain the tilt towards value or growth investing the researchers found. For example, you know, if the economy was in a severe recession when an, an, an investor was between the ages of 18 and 25, or maybe the investor's parents were relatively poor, um, that investor may be more likely to invest in cheap stocks or value stocks, as we mentioned And Gino economists um, who study this type of stuff haven't yet identified the specific variations that might work as as value genes. But the new finding does suggest that you're you know you should ask a financial advisor and investment managers what adversity have you uh, had to overcome in your life and what does it mean to be poor to you. And those are interesting questions. I I never had thought about being genetically disposed predisposed to one of these two types of investing. No, definitely not. You know, and what they go on to say here is that a financial advisor or an investment manager who's never overcome a serious obstacle might not have what it takes to hold on to cheap stocks when they get a lot cheaper in a hurry. You know, a value investor who can withstand the pain isn't a value – who can't withstand the pain isn't a value investor at all. I think the real key 
is to find an advisor who is analytical and has an analytical background and can back up, you know, what they recommend with some academic research. So, you know, is their personality and their background more of the gregarious, born salesman type? Mm-hmm. I mean, then you probably can bet they're not going to study the academics behind the recommendations. Um, you know, they may just be shooting from the hip. So I think, yeah, I mean, it's it's very interesting information, and I think it does mean – it. it it tells you you can't just follow your emotions. You mm-hmm. can't just follow your predispositions. You really need to study it, and you need to be more analytical about how you invest. Yeah, great article. Yeah, good. All right, and that leads up to our question of the week. Yeah, this question is, is, should I save for college for my kids before retirement? Great question. We get that frequently. Actually, uh, I talk about this uh, quite a bit. Dave Ramsey has some some pretty good thoughts on this. Um, retirement should be before saving for college. I, I just yep. was talking with a, a, a couple this last week, um, early 40s. <clears throat> they have just paid off a whole bunch of debt, um, trying to get their emergency fund up to snuff. They have a nine-year-old and then two twin five-year-old girls. Wow. So they had three kids, have saved nothing for retirement, and so they're they're trying to figure out retirement or you know college. And, and the, the wife said, I feel guilty not saving for college. Well, the reality is, is if you don't save for retirement, you're going to be living with your kids in yeah, retirement. Right. So you've got to put the retirement, you know, on top. Um, some of the strategies, strategies we talked about colleges, maybe going to a local community college in this area. USC Aiken and Augusta State are great options. That's right. Um, and if you can get a Hope Scholarship associated with that at Augusta State, you can actually go for free. That's right. So think about getting right. a college education and and the kids getting out without paying any uh, any student debt at all. That's a great situation. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with doing both. I mean, obviously, you can't fully fund your retirement before you save for college. And right. That's not going to happen, right? So I think you got to get both on track for the future. And so, you know, you got to get your match in your 401K. You need to start that immediately. You need to have your emergency fund set up. You just have to have your priorities in order. And you have to be on track for retirement. And then once you're on track, then you can start saving for college sure. for your kids. Sure. But it needs to be in that order. It doesn't mean you have to totally neglect one for the other. I, I think parents do feel a sense of responsibility for college. But I mean, you mentioned earlier you paid for your own college. Yeah, sure. A lot of, a lot of kids go through today, and they can work. They can get scholarships. So, you know, it's not a requirement. It's certainly a, a good goal to have for parents to pay for college. But Three kids, um, you know, you're talking about $300,000 uh, well, expenses. And we know families that have six or seven kids, you know, mm-hmm. and it's not going to happen for them, but they, yet they still go to college. So you can get loans for college. You can't get a loan for retirement. That's right. So Very that's good. a great question of the week, though. All right, and that leads up to our break here. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD with John and Steve. We'll be right back after these messages in Gina News. Stay with us. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is Dave Ramsey's endorsed local provider. And we are going to uh, continue our second segment here and um, with a new topic, and that is an article called Retire at 65 or Not. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, that's that's the age-old question, isn't it? When can you retire and 
you know, how much income are you going to need? Yeah, you know, Steve, I sat down with a, a couple this last week and 58 years old, kind of reviewing their, their retirement plan and, and looking at income. Um, saved a decent amount of money, uh, about three hundred and fifty thousand, which is which is good. Yeah. But in order to meet yeah, their the income pension. requirements, they're going to need over a million dollars. Ouch! So and they don't have so, a pension. Not no, no pension. Um, and so his goal is to work another ten years, to age sixty-eight, which is a great is a great goal. And if his health stays where it needs to be, that can work. And if he's not laid off. Um, that can be a good plan, but we see a lot of the statistics, and a lot of people retire before they had planned based on those two items. That's right. So sometimes yeah. that is, <clears throat> you know, things that, don't always work out the way you plan. So you got to have some contingency built in there. That's right. And, and in his case, what he's going to do, he has a great income, and so he's going to utilize that income over the next eight to ten years, and he's going to end up saving fifty to sixty thousand a year in order to hit his goal. Wow, um, and that's what it takes. If you're, I mean, if you don't have a pension, people don't realize how much it takes to retire. It's a big number. Yeah, when you start looking at inflation, it just the the number skyrockets. So, yeah, uh, good discussion, good conversation. Um, he's going to be saving a lot of money over the next ten years. Um, but you know, to retire at sixty five or sixty eight, I mean, we we just don't know. And um, you know. Perhaps uh, the baby boomers are modifying the definition of what a traditional retirement is, if not redefining it altogether. The Social Security Administration has has subtly revised its definition of the traditional retirement age as well. You know, if you look at the Social Security website, the full retirement age for Americans born between 43 and 54 is 66 years old, and if you were born in you know 1960 and later, it's 67. And yeah, for those hello. people in the middle. You know, it's in between 66 and 67. So they're definitely pushing that back. And, and quite frankly, I've heard some um, the conference we went to, um, <clears throat> you know, recently they were talking about Social Security. That age is going to be continue to push back. Sure. Um, that, sure. It's going to have to. I mean, even though it's 67 now, and we're just hitting that for, for, for folks that are retiring, you know, that are born in 63, I guess, or mm-hmm. earlier, which, you know, is me. Or born after 1960, maybe. But, you know, the the point is, yeah, I mean, it's going to be pushed back again because Social Security is is still not solvent, right? I mean, it's still going to hit um, big negative deficits, Yeah, big deficits here in a few years. And when Social Security first started, the national retirement age was set at 65. And, and in 1940, a 21-year-old man had a 54% chance of living another 44 years to that age and by 1990 that chance had improved to 72 percent so you know for 20 21 year old women um the probability uh of reaching that was between 61 and and 84 percent during the same time frame so you know bottom line is is people are living longer um there's no doubt it's putting strain on the social security system but um you know your your retirement age is depending on when you were born is being moved back to get that full retirement age yeah, so the question is, what do you lose by retiring at 65? Um, you know, the financial opportunity cost is considerable and, and may be greater than some baby boomers realize. If your full retirement age is 67, you'll reduce your monthly Social Security income by around 13.5% if you start taking benefits at age 65. Um, also, for every year that you refrain from taking Social Security until age 70, <clears throat> your Social Security benefits will go up by 8% per mm-hmm, year. Mm-hmm. And that's a 12 per, that's a 12 and a half year payback, John. So 
you know, if you have that option to delay your Social Security to age 70, it probably makes sense for most people. Yeah, and, you know, that also gives some protection to the spouse, right? Right. In most most cases. And, and Yeah, your spouse gets to draw the higher of the two numbers. Whoever survives is surviving spouse. Right. When one passes away, gets the higher. And we, we have some pretty sophisticated Social Security planning that we do to help people figure that out. But, um, you know, in addition to trimming, you know, this long-term Social Security benefit, you also may be forfeiting some, some – uh, some salary, obviously, if you work uh, or still working at age 65, uh, you might be at near or maybe your peak earnings level. And if that's the case, um, Social Security income may, may pale in comparison. So I know, you know, this is one of the conversations we have with retirees frequently is, should I work another year or two? And so we'll exactly. go through the analysis and say, well, your, your Social Security will increase. You're getting income. You're putting more into the 401K versus pulling things out. So it's a big decision. There's a lot going for I mean, Every year you work, it adds adds to your retirement in several ways, mm-hmm. right? So it kind of compounds, right? Because you're saving more money, which is earning more money. Your Social Security goes up. Your pension goes up. Um, you have less years to plan for in retirement. So all those factors really compound the higher benefit that you're going to have in retirement, the higher in- income you're going to have in retirement. Yeah, so you know, thinking, um, think of life after 65 as your third act, if you will, that needs to be funded. And you know, do you think of 65 as late middle age? It may be. As the Social Security Administration website notes, about 25% of today's 65-year-olds should live to age 90, and about 10% of them should reach the age of 95. And you know, even if that doesn't happen for you, you should know that the average 65-year-old today can expect to live into his or her mid-80s. So, you know, you've got 20 or 30 years in retirement that you've got to got to plan for, and and so you got to let those statistics serve as a flashing red light. I mean, you know, illuminating really two new truths for for um, seniority uh, being in in retirement. The first truth is that for many Americans, retirement represents 10, 20, or even 30 years of activity and opportunities. And the second truth is to stay alive and pursue those opportunities, retirees need 10, 20, or 30 years of financial stability. I have a grandmother um, approaching 99 years old, and so she's had a very, very long retirement. And we see that medical technology is increasing lifespans, and it's going to continue going forward. Uh, Most Americans haven't amassed the uh, equivalent of 30 years of retirement savings and, you know, many want to stay in the game a little longer. Um, a 2013 Gallup poll found that 37% of Americans expect to retire after the age of 65, and that's compared with 14% in 1995. So that shows some of the, the retirement crisis that we're going to be talking about in a couple of minutes that most people are – or some people are having to work longer um, because they haven't saved. Yeah, that's the, the unfortunate reality is – even though people are planning to work to age 65 or even longer for a large percentage of Americans, um, the question is how many can work full-time until age 65? You know, the bad news is, according to the uh, uh, the same Gallup poll, the average retirement age in America is 61. The good news is, depending on how you look at this, if you want to call this good news, is that it was 57 in 1991. So assuming we keep living longer and healthier, it seems plausible the average age of retirement might hit age 65, um, if not for the boomers, then maybe for the Gen Xers. But, right. you know, the point is, um, you know, are you going to be allowed to work that long? I mean, does your employer want you to your 65? Yeah. You know, probably not. I mean, not in some cases, no. Some cases, I mean, you start slowing down. You're at your peak earning years. They'd they'd much rather hire somebody that's more energetic and 
younger for a lot cheaper mm-hmm. and that's more in tune with the latest you know technology sure so yeah you need to think about all those things you you may not be able to work that long absolutely and regardless of when uh, baby boomers retire growth investing will probably continue to have merit you know even a moderate amount of inflation steve as we know erodes purchasing power over time and you know its effects can be felt in less than than a decade and um, you, know, you know, we see this. I mean, look at um, grocery prices, gas um, per gallon, milk, cheese, eggs. Everything's expensive. Ten years ago, it's a lot different. So if you don't have a way to um, combat that inflation, it can stress your monthly income. And, you know, people have forgotten what real inflation is like, right? Because we've had like 2% inflation now for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it's been the 80s and the 70s since we've seen anything over 3%. For, for any extended period of time. I mean, the, the time's going to come. Yeah, we're gonna at some see, point. We're going to see 5% inflation again at some point, and the Fed's not going to be able to prevent it. And when that happens, you know, people that are on fixed income and retirement, they retired like they were on the bubble, and they really didn't have quite enough. Mm-hmm. They'll be to, exposed. To make it work, uh, those folks are going to be are going to be in a world of hurt. Yep. So you don't want to forget, you've got to leave yourself a cushion for retirement. And inflation. Inflation. Yes. Yeah, inflation huge. is a huge swing factor. It will affect your retirement big time if that kicks in high gear. So the question is, is you know, when should you retire or can you retire? And, you know, if that question's on your mind to any degree, um, you know, consider an evaluation of your retirement readiness, uh, a review of what you have, an estimation of what you need, and a clear look at the possibilities uh, before you, it'll be time well spent. And Steve, we obviously do that for a lot of folks sure. coming into our business and our existing clients as well. So if you need some help with that, you can certainly reach out to us, and we'll be more than happy to um, to assist you. That's right. Yep. And that leads up to our break here. But um, if you do have questions, um, you can email us at info at moneymd.net, or you can give us a call at Richard Young Associates at seven zero six seven three nine zero seven two five. You're listening to Money MD with John and Steve. Be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is Dave Ramsey's endorsed local provider. And we are continuing our discussion here. Um, well, actually, we're starting a new discussion, and we're going to start off here, though, with the prescription of the week. Yeah, Steve, I did this this last week. I uh, created a, um, uh, an account with uh, the, the Social Security Administration. The website is yeah. www.ssa.gov. That's, That's pretty easy, ssa.gov. ssa.gov, and um, you basically go in there and key in some personal information, and you can have access um, to your earnings records. Um, I actually printed out a copy of the Social Security statement. They're not sending those out anymore. Yep. Um, you can kind of go back and make sure that the earnings look uh, correct. It also gives you some good information about... Um, Social Security amounts at the different ages, 62, 67, 70. Um, You know, one of the things that a lot of folks, and and when we sit down, I mentioned earlier that sat down with a a couple in their early 40s and just starting to save for retirement, um, one of the things they forget about is how important Social Security is going to be to them. Um, You know, we do bash the system a little bit, and they're probably going to make some changes, but for most people, it can be a significant piece of their income coming in. Yeah, it's and important. It is It is very important. So making sure that those records are correct and just keeping kind of a track on it. Um, for some people, part of their retirement planning is to work another year or two or four 
because every year they wait, it's another eight percent on top of what they they would get. So that that's, right. that's part of their plan is and just understanding what those numbers are is is important. Yeah, it definitely is. Yeah, you definitely want to go on that website. And um, I have a credit freeze on my account, so I, I on my credit uh, accounts at mm-hmm. uh, all three and, of yep. the the credit bureaus, Experian, TransUnion, and, and Equifax. And uh, so I think they use Experian because I could not mm-hmm. create that account. I think it's easy to there. unfreeze those and then freeze it, it back. It is. Maybe. That's it. That's my. You can either you can unfreeze it temporarily, <clears throat> which I could do, or you mm-hmm. can just go up to the Social Security Administration office mm-hmm. and they can set up the account for you right there, even though you have a credit freeze on. So I just need to stop yeah. by the office. Yeah. So go to ssa.gov and and take a look at that. It's very very important, and yeah, we send people there all the time, mm-hmm. and uh, you need to know what your Social Security looks like. So, yep. Good topic. All right. And that leads us up here to our uh, final topic, and that is an article out of the Associated Press. Um, it says the world braces for retirement crisis. John, what does that mean? What Retirement crisis? Yes. Yes. Doesn't it sound like they're hyping it up just a little <laughs> bit there? Yeah. Well, we just went through an article um, talking about how people are, are working longer. Part of part of the reason is they haven't saved enough. Right. And, um, you know, a global retirement crisis is, is bearing down on, on workers really of all ages. This is associated um, with the Associated Press article. And uh, this has really spawned um, years before the Great Recession and the financial meltdown in 2008. Uh, the crisis was significantly worsened by those those twin uh, traumas, and it, it will play out for decades, and its consequences are going to be far-reaching for a lot of people, and really not just the United States, but across the world. Yeah, that's right. I think uh, many people are going to be forced to work well past their traditional retirement age of 65 um, to 70, or even, even longer. You know, I mean, living standards are going to going to fall. Um, poverty rates are going to rise for the elderly in wealthy countries that built safety nets for seniors after World War II. And in developing countries, um, people's rising expectations are going to be frustrated if governments can't afford the retirement systems to, uh, to replace the tradition of children caring for their aging parents, which, of course, is not happening like it used to, John, because people move away, right? They don't mm-hmm. stay around and really live in the family homestead or right around the family homestead where they can care for their parents. People are all over the country now. And, you know, that's, that's a problem for today's nuclear family, if you will. Absolutely. And, you know, the the problems are emerging as the generation born after World War II moves into retirement, also known as the, the baby boomers. The first wave of underprepared workers is going to try and go into retirement and, um, you know, according to some folks, we'll find out they can't afford to do so. And that's... um according to a, a gentleman from uh, he's a retirement specialist actually over in Germany. He works for a company called Mercer, who is a global um, consulting firm. So and we're starting to see a lot of people go through the system, and it's putting pressure on the system, but also they're struggling. Yeah, there's kind of three points to this crisis that's converging here, um, three different factors. The first one is countries are slashing retirement benefits and raising the age to start collecting them. Um you know, just like we talked about Social Security, mm-hmm. right? It's raised up to age 67 now for full Social Security for folks like you and me. And uh, it's probably going to be raised again for people that are younger, you know, that are in their 20s. I wouldn't be surprised if our kids don't end up being at 70. 70. You know? I think 70 I mean, is going to be the retirement age for Social Security. And they're going to move it from 62 to probably 65 is the early benefit. That's exactly right. You know, so, I mean, if you if something happens and you can't work that long, then maybe you collect disability until age 70. But I'll bet you 70 is going to be the long-term age. Mm-hmm. 
and probably should be to, to preserve the system and, you know, for people that really need it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, so countries are doing that just like we have. And these countries are awash in debt after overspending the last decade, racking up enormous deficits since the recession. And now they face the demographic disaster as retirees are living a lot longer, you know, and, and the falling birth rates mean that they're going to be fewer workers to support them. So that's the first leg of the crisis. Yeah, the other piece that we see, Steve, is that companies have eliminated the traditional pension plan um, that cost employees nothing, really, and guaranteed them a, a monthly check in retirement. We also see companies are changing the benefits in retirement for people. The, the pension plans, in some cases, are being cut. I mean, the folks up in Detroit right. um, you know, are going through uh, gnashing of teeth because the, the benefits that have been promised to them are being reduced. There's a lot of folks in South Carolina and Georgia which are going to be counting on teacher pensions um, from the systems, and you know, hopefully they'll they'll stay whole and do well. But you just never know. I mean, you can't. Nothing's guaranteed. Yeah, almost no companies out there are offering new pension plans, except for the government workers, except for you know state and, and federal workers. New employees generally don't get a pension mm-hmm. in a company, so pensions are going by the wayside, just like you mentioned. And and so, and then people that change jobs or get transferred now, that they lose their pension. Their pension gets frozen. So it's not what they thought it was going to be. And so, the third leg of this problem is that individuals spent freely and failed to save before the recession, you know, and they saw much of their wealth disappear once the recession hit. So, yeah, people haven't saved properly. And I think, you know, this dovetails into the pension problem because younger people fail to recognize they're going by the old paradigm of, oh, yeah, if I save, you know, 6% in my 401k and I get a 3% match, I'm going to be fine. That's what my dad did, and he's fine. Well, your dad had a pension. Mm-hmm, yeah. Okay, so wake up, young man, yeah. you know, or young woman. Yeah. You know, you're not going to have a pension. 6% ain't going to get it done. A 40000 a year pension that that dad has is equivalent yeah. to having about $800,000 saved up. That's right. I mean, it's, it's a big number. That's right. It's worth like a million dollars in yeah. a lot of cases, you yeah. know. So you got to save a million dollars to replace that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, young men and women out there, you know, you need to think about that. You need to wake up. That is... It's, uh, you know, what dad did and what mom did are not going to work for you in retirement. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of these factors, Steve, have been documented um, individually. What's less appreciated is their combined ferocity and their global scope. I mean, most countries are not ready to meet what is sure to be one of the, the defining challenges of the 21st century. And that's the, um, that's what a think tank up in Washington, D.C. said in a, in, a, in a report this fall. So what is someone to do? Someone's listening to us out there. They're not retired yet. What are some steps? they can take so they're not in this retirement crisis that we see you know out there yeah you know i love the automatic increase choices i mean Mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of retirement plans now allow you to set up like an automatic increase in your in your 401k plan like one percent to two or exactly so like every year you know you're gonna get maybe a two or three percent raise right i mean if you're if you're lucky Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. maybe higher if you get promoted so why don't you set up a 1% increase if you can, or if you don't, just do it manually. Every single year, increase your percent your contribution by 1% of your salary. Yep. So if you have 6% today, next year it'll be 7, then it'll be 8, then it'll be 9, and get it up to, to at least 10% of your, well, I'd say, 
actually 15% total is what we recommend, mm-hmm. right? So you might need to be 10 or 12, and the match brings you up to 15. Yeah, that's great. And if you don't have that type of plan, then set up something on the outside, a Roth IRA, another IRA, but do it electronically. I mean, the people that, yes. that come in their office and say, well, I'll send you a check. I don't want to do it. It doesn't happen. It typically doesn't happen. So set you, you know, pay yourself in that process. I, I talked with a, a, a young man this last week, 20 years old, had a death in the family. He inherited about 50000 and his question was, "Is what should I do with that money? And so we started talking about it. Um, he had a whole bunch of debt, student loans, so that's the first thing that's going to go pay off your debt. And then the second thing is is to get an emergency fund. Once those two things are in place, then you can go. And I, I told him, I said, man, if you set up a Roth account and you fund it for the next 40 years, I mean, the numbers can get really big based on, on and, historical and it'll numbers. And be tax-free, John. Yeah, I know. I mean, see, they have some tools in place today to get you to retirement in a very sweet situation mm-hmm. where it's tax-free in a Roth IRA. So, yep. yeah, you need to use that. Yep. Great advice. All right. Well, that brings us up to the close of this week's edition of Money MD with John and Steve. Tune in next Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. And do check us on our website, moneymd.net, and email us your questions. We'd love to hear from you at info at moneymd.net or Give us a call, John and Steve, during regular business hours at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Have a good one. Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed local provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, securities sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC.